crude laboratory in the basement of his home. Welcome to the CEO Raider Podcast with your host, John Mayetta. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcast content. Today, I wanted to talk about you can't force a market to accept your product before the market is ready. You can't force a solution on the market. You can't force a product on the market. You can't always get what you want. So this is why I like to see, whether it's a publicly traded company, a private company, I like to see a company that has a portfolio of product and services. I like to see a portfolio of bread and butter product and services. And by bread and butter, those are products and services that have already established traction in the marketplace. They've already uh, achieved broad market adoption. Those products are uh, profitable. They the companies will still invest in them to keep them fresh at the margin. Maybe you roll out ancillary features and functionality to help broaden the scope of those products and capture new customers, keep existing customers happy to maintain some sort, some level of pricing power. But those bread and butter products are the ones that enable companies to invest in new disruptive products. And new disruptive products are, I think it's beneficial when they are a combination of organic products developed from within as well as disruptive products acquired acquisitions. I think it's always good to bring new blood and new products and services into technology companies or other companies for that matter by, by way of acquisition. Keep the company's DNA fresh, have influence from outside the four walls of the company. Those disruptive products, they too may be profitable or they may be uh, early stage, experimental stage, and, and typically, it's typically it's the latter. Typically, they're, they're not profitable, they're disruptive because uh, they represent a new way of doing things, uh, creative solutions, creative products that may circumvent legacy processes. Uh, they may require a, a consultative sales effort in order to drive market adoption. I'll give you an example with, with us because I can speak from experience. Our our the review. Customer review, investor review, employee review portion of the CEO Rater platform. People get that. They understand Glassdoor. They look at uh, Amazon reviews, uh, review to Twitter, you know, using Twitter as a source of providing customer feedback on, you, you typically see people do this with, with airline travel as an example, uh, Yelp reviews. So people get the review piece. That's not a uh, uh, an evangelical type of crossing the chasm product. It's, it's, it's a bread and butter offering. Then uh, we have our personality analytics effort, which is more on the consultative side. Uh, people have been using personality analytics on the customer side for, for some time, for, uh, both for existing customers as well as the, the, with respect to targeting new customers. So companies that are forward thinking, that are uh, analytical and data driven have been using uh, personality analytics to, to drive Sales activity, sales and marketing, um, for for some time. It's it's a uh, a more recent phenomenon in in HR where companies will create profiles. And this when I, when I say personality, I'm not talking about John Mayetta is X personality, but more so we like to hire people that would fit this experience and this personality profile for this type of role. So data driven but without the PII data attached, so anonymized. So you've seen this type of, of an effort deployed in, in HR for a handful of years as, you, as you've seen the, the HR function become more algorithm and data-driven. You've seen it with uh, uh, dating websites have, have been algorithm-driven for, at this point, it's been more than a decade. 
and for us, where we're deploying personality analytics, I, I think HR is one market for sure, but initially we're targeting institutional investors in, the, in that community. And when they look at uh, the management teams running companies, it's typically what has that CEO done in the past with respect to making earnings numbers, missing earning numbers, and, that, and that's kind of it. And then obviously you would look at a CEO's experience with relation to what other industry experience that they have if they're taking over a new company. As CEO, do they have any experience in this industry, what have you, that type of thing, the, the traditional elements. We're working to bring personality in as a way to identify risk with respect to a CEO is, is one obvious use case. So if you have a CEO that's... Um, Highly energetic, highly intellectually curious, uh, that likes to make decisions by way of consensus, that's always seeking new information, uh, the, the type of CEO that would probably fit well with a, a, a company in the autonomous driving sector, let's say, where the technology is very fluid, um, the space is moving quickly, uh, there isn't any one clear b blueprint to success. Uh, it, it, it's almost a space that's in the research and development phase, if you will. The, the CEO I just described would fit well in that sector, probably would not fit well in a sector like utilities, or what we used to uh, call chicken tech back when I was a, an investor. Chicken tech being technology companies that uh, slow-moving technology. So I would, what I would define as chicken tech, one example would be the, the legacy payment companies the Jack Henrys of the world, the bottom line technologies of the world, the ACIWs of the world. If you have the CEO personality I just described and you dropped it into one of those legacy companies, that CEO would have to make the culture over or that culture would reject the CEO. Similarly, if you took one of the existing CEOs from one of those companies I just named and dropped them into a uh, dropped them into Waymo, for, for an example, if, if you know Waymo in the autonomous driving space. I can promise you they would fail. It's not because they don't know how to manage people. It's not because they don't know how to manage a cost infrastructure. It's not because they don't know how to lead an organization. It's because from a personality standpoint, they're just not cut out for the work. Simple as that. And so what does that mean? Well, I'll give an example. Now, I haven't back-tested this, but my theory is, as an example, because you have, let's say, legacy tech guys, chicken tech guys, and they are guys, leading the legacy payment companies. There's a reason why Jack Henry, why Bottom Line Technologies, why ACIW didn't bring a solution like Square to market. There's a reason why disruption came from outside of the incumbents, as disruption usually does within the world of technology. Certain per personality types are better to lead the status quo. I hate to even use the word lead. Probably a better word is to manage the status quo and keep things running as usual. But they're not cut out to be creative, to be innovative, to be disruptive. And the unfortunate thing is what typically happens with the incumbents is they ultimately get disrupted. Everything's great until it's not. The iPhone keeps selling until it doesn't. I kind of live this as an employee in the insurance technology space. Everything's great until the market moves away from you. And when it happens, it happens fast. And if you don't take preventative steps to 
address what may be around the corner, you're going to be left flat-footed and you're going to get knocked out. The punch that you don't see coming is always the one that hurts, as we've written about in the past at Tech Today. So personality matters, but just because I believe it doesn't mean that the solution is going to become widely adopted tomorrow, even if I had a million data points to point to. You can't change customer behavior overnight, particularly when you have a disruptive solution. So I chuckle when I come across these companies who have a brilliant new idea, even if logic would dictate or logic would suggest that their uh, solution is one that would put dollars in customers' pockets. If they have a, uh, a, an ROI, an ROIC, value prop that's demonstrable, doesn't mean that customers are going to adopt it overnight. It takes more than a few weeks, more than a, four, a few quarters to change customer adoption. I'll give you a public company example because it's now in the past. Uh, SPSS, if you know those guys, now part of IBM. They sold in, I think it was 2009. And SPSS always had a great set of analytical tools for data scientists. Well, there was a point, I think it was in 2007, SPSS tried to push those analytical tools into the hands of business users through a set of analytical applications and the market just wasn't ready. Business users just, just didn't want it. And now there are a number of companies, and they're having success, uh, sort of democratizing AI, democratizing machine learning, and having success putting that power in the hands of, of business users some 10 years later. So point being, if you are a company, it doesn't matter if you have 20 million on the balance sheet or 20 billion on the balance sheet. It's not a capital issue. You can't force a solution or a product set a service set on the market before the market is ready. And sometimes, oftentimes, you, the vendor, have to be the one to coax the market along and make it ready. And that process is often a multi-year process. The process of getting it right is a process. It's not a function of how much capital you have on the balance sheet. See you all next time.